has been tossed in his second game with the Mavericks. It didn't take long, did it? No. Welcome back to another edition of 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Brian Damaris. And as always, I am with the golden-throated one, the voice of the play, play-by-play voice of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Followell. Good afternoon, Brian. As always, a pleasure to chat with you and see you. We have another uh, guest today, and we have the great Mark Stein, the New York Times NBA writer, uh, formerly of ESPN and formerly of the Dallas Morning News, and that's why we have him on. We we, we had a great chat with him uh, about the state of the NBA and his thoughts, and he had a lot of great insight into uh, the May 8th possible reopenings of practice facilities and what a resumption of the season could look like if it happens. And then we also talked to him about the... 30 days of Dennis Rodman, because we're all watching The Last Dance, and he was the beat writer for the Mavs when uh, Rodman played his 12 games in the uniform, his last games in the NBA. Yes, indeed. From uh, early February until early February 2000 until early March 2000, an eventful 30 days of Dennis Rodman in Dallas, Brian. And he's got some unique insight into that. So uh, please enjoy that and then stay tuned, because after that, Paul and I will have our comments on the Mavs-related ties to the last couple of episodes of The Last Dance and our thoughts on uh, possible reopenings and what the March 8th date could bring for us. So let's get rolling. We're now joined by New York Times NBA writer and former Mavericks and ESPN NBA writer, Mark Stein. Mark, how are you? Guys, it's good to catch up. I'm actually glad because I had a mailbag question last week that I didn't get to ask. So now, now I'm going to get to ask it in person. This is good. Or, oh, know, not not in person, but you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Well, it's fantastic to talk to you as always, Steiny. And uh, wish we were talking modern day basketball, but that time will come soon enough. We hope, and uh, more on that in a little bit. But yes, uh, I guess the moment to jump off, Brian, is talking with Mark about Dennis Rodman, who was. With the Mavericks and Mark's final season as beat writer for the Dallas Morning News, covering the Mavericks from 1997 to 2000. Yeah, we wanted to uh, to get your thoughts because we're all watching The Last Dance, and uh, Rodman was focused on in episodes three and four, and so you were the beat writer for the Mavericks from 97 to 2000. So let's start there. When did you first uh, hear about Rodman uh, signing with the Mavs? Well, if you remember that season and, you know, Cuban buying the team, it just kind of came upon us quick. I'm guessing I didn't know you then, Mr. Damaris, but I'm guessing you knew all about it being with him at broadcast.com. But that, that came together pretty fast. And in the middle of the season, January 4th, 2000, Cuban has a deal to buy the team. And uh, it certainly happened fast for the Mavericks coaching staff, which obviously feared the worst and thought they'd be gone. But, you know, I think Mark was well-known maybe in, in some Dallas business circles, but I mean, he was a complete unknown quantity for the NBA. But I think what became apparent very quick, you know, he was not formally approved as owner until April, but he convinced Ross Pro Jr., no, man, if I'm paying $280 million, I, I'm running the team now. And even though he didn't have, he was not ratified as the owner of the team, he basically started running the team instantly. And it was great for me personally because 
I'm a night owl and quickly discovered he was a night owl and I would just send him an email thinking, oh yeah, he'll, maybe he'll see this the next day, you know, and owners engaging with writers by email was unheard of at, at that point in the NBA, but Cuban would be up and I would talk to him. We would start having these email chains at one in the morning. So for me, it was fantastic. And it, just, it didn't look, it was clear. I didn't know him well, but it was clear he wanted to make splashy moves and the Mavericks had basically been the worst franchise in North America through the 90s record-wise. And there were only so many things he could do right away. But that was one of them. Rodman was a free agent, and he decided, I'm going to go after this guy and try. And obviously, Dennis has ties to the area. So Cuban kind of made it hit one of his, one of his first missions. I'm going to go get this guy. At the time, Mark, I was working on the ticket and Dallas, and one of the things that I recall is that at least on the air, whenever Nelly would do interviews about it, he seemed to really embrace the whole idea that it was going to be a move for publicity and he was going to have a really good time with it and was looking forward to it. And also, of course, spoke favorably about the basketball aspects of it. Uh, what do you remember about uh, how Nelly genuinely felt about the whole aspect of Rodman coming on board? I think everybody in the camp really was hesitant about it because everyone knew that this guy was the wild card of all wild cards. And if I remember right, and I have to say my memory used to be so good and it just sucks now. So I really hope I'm not screwing some of this stuff because I like it, it has gone from a strength to a weakness in a hurry. But if I remember right, like the Mavs even said, you know, we won't make you practice. Like they really kind of relaxed the rules just to make this happen. I mean, it was clearly, I mean, publicity stunt maybe isn't the right word. Cause, um, you know, that Dennis obviously was not that far removed from being a contributor on a championship team. So, and clearly when you just look at the raw numbers, I mean, he, he, he could, he, he basically walked in off the street and averaged 14 rebounds a game. I think he had a 21 rebound game, a 19 rebound game. He was still a force. I mean, he was still the best rebounder on earth. But you know, he. I think Nash said it after they let him go. I mean, he never gave anyone the vibe that he was really into being there, that he really wanted to do this. And you know, the story that kind of everyone always tells is. Dennis would take a shower before game. And he usually did this right when Nelly would start going over that night's game plan. He would just bolt to the showers. And even Nelly, with all his experience, and, you know, Nelly could scream at players and berate players as well as anyone. I mean, he unleashed some withering rants on players in those Mavs days. But, uh, you know, he couldn't control Rob. I mean, nobody could. I mean, it only worked in Chicago because they had Michael Jordan. I mean, nobody was going to be able to tell him what to do. And, and that, that's why it was the whole idea was kind of ridiculous. And so Rodman would just routinely blow off, hey, these are our coverages tonight, and Rodman wouldn't even be there. 
So now you just noted uh, your and your your self admitted lapse in memory. So let me let me set things up to help you out a little bit, and then maybe we can go over some of your recollections that you have about the first couple of games. The first game you played with the Mavs was a home game against Seattle right before the All Star break, which they lost by eleven. My recollection of that is a lot of the players talked after the fact, Mark, that that it was a very young team, and basically they were caught up in the hype and caught up in the buzz and caught up in watching. Rodman on the floor and didn't play their best particular game that night against Seattle. And then the next game that Rodman played was another home game. It was after the All-Star break against the Milwaukee Bucks. That was the game where with approximately seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, he got a technical foul and ended up sitting down at midcourt, which resulted in another technical foul and obviously his ejection at that point and throwing his jersey into the stands. So that's my uh, that's my background recollection of his first two games and the zaniness around them with the Mavs, if, if that helps trigger some of your memories about what, what you recall from his first two games with Dallas. Well, I think that also triggered a suspension. He got hit with yeah. a one-game suspension like right away because he sat on the court in protest. And I remember the first game a little better only because I actually found this last week in the last dance hysteria. The morning news like six, seven years ago actually republished my first game story from the Rodman era online. So I actually read that one last week and, and it is, it is really fun to kind of go back and relive that. Cause like I tell you, I for, I've forgotten so much of it. Um, but I think the, 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 the interest that he generated was huge. And, you know, Brian could probably speak to this as well as anyone having worked for Mark for a long time, you know, selling tickets right away was a huge deal. Cuban and the Mavs were not a draw. They just, even with a young Dirk, it was a, you know, just a horrific decade. The nineties, the Mavs were such a powerhouse in the eighties and an instant success. And the nineties were dreadful. And by the end of the nineties, after a decade of disappointment, I mean, this team was not drawn well at home and you bring in Rodman and suddenly tickets are in demand and, and going to the, going to reunion to see the Mavs was a party and, I mean, Rodman was a major, major attraction right off the bat. Yeah, I looked at some early attendance figures from that season, and they were getting, you know, 12 and change in terms of attendance, 12,000 plus. Uh, if the Lakers came to town, they would get like 17. Capacity was, you know, 18 plus at the time. Uh, this was still a reunion. And then, yeah, that first game that you mentioned, the second, or actually the second game, the Milwaukee game uh, at home, was a sellout the one he got tossed in. I was at that game. I could clearly remember, uh, you know, him sitting on the court. And then when he's walking out behind the benches, he throws his Jersey in the crowd. Uh, and, and the sold out crowd was, was absolutely going bonkers for it. And it was, as you said, a party atmosphere. Mark was, had the, uh, stars club. It was called outside that bubble bar, uh, where it was free drinks for the first hour, uh, on him and uh, yeah, games kind of became the place to be. And I had kind of forgotten that this was less than a month into Cuban's tenure. You know that he was that he did this um, from right. From- and and the, like these were these were the only things he could do. Like he was not like you you couldn't tell. I mean, you know, Cuban, you can't tell him. Well, you know, our roster ain't that great, and we can't really do anything at the trade deadline. Like he didn't want to wait. Like he wanted to do stuff from minute one. And again, it, it's. What fascinates me the most is that he he didn't even have like he wasn't even supposed to be running the team. Like I still 
I probably should ask him. I still don't know quite how he pulled that off because, again, he really shouldn't have been. I think the phrase I would, you know, he was not yet the controlling owner. Would I don't remember what the language I would use in the paper, but the first three months he was just running things without even technically being approved as the league owner, approved by the league as the owner. So, so as a reporter, I guess you know before Cuban and definitely before Rodman, it was probably pretty sleepy around the Mavs. I mean, it would probably be you and maybe a couple of other reporters. What was it like uh, around the the Landry Center where they practiced at the time and at the arena uh, during those twenty nine days of Rodman? Well, it still stayed sleepy, probably on the practice days for the most part, because you know obviously I I miss those times because even even once. You know, the Finley, Nash, Dirk, Mav took off. I mean, you still didn't get huge media crowds at practice, but I read it in that story, which, again, I, I'd forgotten that I think it, the first game against Seattle, I described it as a Cowboys-like media throng, and I totally forgot this. don't know who even allowed this, but I had something in there about getting waved into the weight room to interview Rodman while all this other media was outside. So somebody, somebody definitely took care of me that night and sneaked me in there. Cause that was another thing Dennis did after games. He just, he didn't, he just went to go lift home road, whatever. He didn't, he didn't even shower. He just went straight to go lift. Cause wow. he was well, he had a, shower you know, a, a weight room addict. So yeah, I mean, he showered pregame and lifted weights postgame, a routine unlike any other. So at the end of Rodman's time, his brief time with Dallas, and and four and nine was the record in his time with the with the Mavs. Although three and nine in the games he played, and the other one was the suspension game that Mark you just referenced a minute ago. After his sitting down at midcourt, they did win that game when he was suspended against the Detroit Pistons. But four and nine was the record. Uh, the time with the Mavs for Rodman ended with a five game losing streak and losses on the road by fourteen to Phoenix, twenty one to Sacramento and 15 to Seattle. And the game after he got waived was actually a 21-point home loss to Minnesota. And then they got in a really good stretch after that. So from from your recollection of it, I guess by by the time that they were a month into it and the buzz had worn off, everybody seemed like they grew tired of his act pretty quickly. And his, his presence certainly seemed to be a real negative as it related to team performance, looking at those last few results before they released him. I think you could even make the case he might have cost them a playoff first. Now, they had been out of the playoffs for a decade. That season also started terribly. But if you look at the record from when Cuban came in on January 4th, they finished that season well over 500 from Cuban's takeover, even including the four and nine stretch you're referencing. I mean, they, I, I think they had won eight of 11 right before Rodman started playing. So they had finally, they were finally starting to figure things out. And then Rodman comes in and was just a circus. And I mean, you know, circus does is, is putting it charitably. I mean, there's, you know, you know, the positive part of it, like I said, the place is packed and everyone's talking about, you know, it's the Cowboys town, but finally people are talking about the Mavs, but I mean, the negatives were, you know, you, you couldn't, he didn't, you couldn't coach him. You couldn't control him. You couldn't, you know, he was totally freelancing out there on defense doing whatever he wanted. And, and they made, you know, they, they finished that season 40 and 42 and they, I think they were three or four games out of a playoff spot, but it really kind of broke up the momentum they had. And then they were able to finish 
the season well. But if you know, if you remember, he started staying in Cuban's guest house. The league wouldn't allow it. He forced him to move. He wanted to wear number sixty nine. League wouldn't allow it, so he took <laughs> seven. Like just con, you know, he was. The, the Mavs in the league office were engaged in very frequent dialogue during those. And, and that's their thing. I, I actually, the math was wrong. It was actually 35 days, but, but the, basically Dennis agreed to sign and told the Mavs, but I got to go to the Super Bowl to keep up a promotional contract that I signed. So he didn't, he, he agreed in late January, didn't actually sign with the Mavs until February 3rd of 99 because he had to go to the Super Bowl first. That, that kind of set the tone for what it was like. Absolutely awesome. And and I do have to say as well, and, and I enjoyed seeing that picture, and I had forgotten that, that he actually held a jersey that said 69. I guess Mark has said that he has one of those Yeah, he's still. got them. He's got them. And, I mean, you know, I don't know how many there are. And I, I, that picture that someone tweeted and I retweeted, I, I can only assume that was at Cuban's house because there was never, like, a press event where Rodman held up number 69. But, you know, he wanted number 69, Mass printed up a few, and the league said no. So Dennis said, I'm going with 69 plus one. I guess on this podcast we can we can discuss such things at least. We, we can dis- Yes, we can discuss this, such things, and, and I saw your tweet about that. But, but you know. Because, and, you know what, it's something I need to research, and I don't really have the tools to do it. I don't have access to the morning news archives. I was trying to remember. I don't know if I would have been allowed in the morning news to write about that. That just might in 2000. That might have been too risque to cover. And I, like I said, I honestly just don't remember how much was. I couldn't really find anything online to to show how how uh, how in depth we went on the jersey number selection story in in 2000. I would say that we were allowed to touch that on the ticket probably a little bit more than you were allowed to touch yeah. that in the morning I'm news. That was yeah. the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> so so my, my last thought on Rodman is despite whatever you want to say about his disruptiveness with the Mavericks and that being uh, an, uh, an ignominious piece of his NBA career and of Dallas Mavericks history in the early part of the Mark Cuban era, it is really interesting, Mark, to watch the last dance and to hear him talk and to see that uh, he was not far removed and, and all of the circus and all of the disruptiveness distracts from the fact that, that we forget uh, when you hear what Chuck Daly had to say about his Pistons time and what Phil and Mike had to say about his Bulls time, uh, even though there were obviously some weird moments there, when his mind was engaged, the dude was a very, very unique, historic contributor to some great teams, wasn't he? I mean, look, the guy was unreal defender, could guard all five positions for sure. I mean, just, you know, you know, probably one of the five best defenders ever when you take the total package. Rebounding, obviously. The, the, the sad thing is, I think, with the Pistons and the Bulls, they speak about Dennis as a teammate with great reverence. The Mavs didn't get that, Dennis. So, if you polled Mavs players of that era, I don't think they would be able to give you the same kind of glowing stories because, again, he he clearly wasn't engaged at that point anymore. His his career, I think he knew his career was over. You know, Cuban sold him on it, and I think for Mark, it was you know there were a lot of important lessons in that experience. You know, he he was just starting out as an owner. He needed to find some of these things out for himself. And while it was was certainly a business success to have him, even for just a month, it was. 
disastrous from basketball perspective. And I'm sure Mark would probably say that there was a lot of valuable stuff he learned from going through that. And it was kind of his, it was his first big move, but you actually reminded me of something else. What was really lucky for me was that was going, that was the Olympic summer of 2000 coming in front of us. And so because I was going to be covering my first Olympics for the morning news, I was actually given like a week off during the season that I normally wouldn't have received because my summer was going to be a lot longer with this long trip to Sydney for the Olympics. So I took one of my famed soccer trips to England in March after a few weeks of Dennis because, man, I, I already needed a break. Dennis was actually re- the whole episode of Dennis being released actually happened when I was in England. Wow. So I didn't even get to, I wasn't even, I didn't even get to be here for the hasty ending, which happened basically when at, I, I, you said they lost five in a row after that fifth loss. He basically blasted Cube and said he hung out with the team too much and was hurting the team. The guy who let him live in his house and basically run amok. And then he also said the Mavs. He basically ripped everyone on the team by saying the Mavs needed. We need backup guards. We need starting guards. We need a new power forward. We need a new center. He basically ripped the whole team. And that was the last time they saw him. He was released the next day, and that was all she wrote. And that was his last NBA game. And But I, I will say, to, to kind of put a button on this uh, last dance part of this, uh, I did enjoy um, your sentiments, which equal mine, that the CBS NBA on CBS theme music of the 80s is by far the number one NBA theme music. I know that the three of us are of similar age, and so we are nostalgic in that way. And I did read your newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to at the Times, that says this is a, this is an argument that can have several answers. But I think all three of us agree that that uh, it puts round rock, round ball rock to shame. No, it's just it's one of those things where everybody naturally whatever when whatever time you grew up in, you think is the greatest time. And I. I the the 80s even though i i mean the 80s were rough on me from the perspective of you know i lived in the buffalo area first before i moved to southern california so i my my favorite team was the buffalo braves at age nine i lost my favorite team and i didn't just pick up the san diego clippers as my new favorite team i really had no favorite team but i loved the nba so much that even though i never really had another favorite team again which actually served me really well once I became a writer, I had no allegiances to shed. But in the eighties, I, I mean, just you see the, the, that that CBS theme. Like we we the game you the game was was just starting to be distributed nationally. So there was just something magical about hearing that CBS intro. You, it just NBA game in those times they just felt like such a big deal because I can still remember in the late 70s and early 80s when the finals would be on tape delay and you couldn't even watch them live. And so to have those, you know, seeing the Jordan 63-point game with the CBS intro, I mean, that is, it, it does give you chills. Well, Mark, to follow up on a comment that you just said about NBA games when they came on in the 80s seemed like such a big deal, I think it would be a fair characterization to say that when they return in 2020, NBA games will seem like such a big deal. So as we transition for a few minutes here at the end of our time with you, what's your vision? And this is a tough spot to put you in because I I say this when anybody ever asks me. Clearly right now we're all guessing because there are still so many unknowns. But as you take stock of the land, 
landscape right now of the road back to getting the resumption of the 2019-20 season? Where is your head on that right now? It's not a tough question. It's more a depressing question because I just I can't give the positive, hopeful answer that I want to give. I, I just I've thought all along that this season would not be able to be resuscitated. I just think too many things are working against all sports leagues in trying to do this. And you know, you're as big a soccer guy as I am, and I think we're seeing it in Europe now with leagues that even announced we're coming back in May, we're coming back in June. You know, even those leagues that were ahead of the NBA in terms of their resumption plans, they're starting to hit the brakes and get scared and nobody wants to go first. And so I've kind of felt all along, like at some point the NBA will try, it will try to restart things, but just the chances of more cases spreading and more issues arising, it's just, you know, I'm no epidemiologist, but it's just, I mean, you can just see how difficult this is. I mean, the week began, this week began with the NBA putting out two memos to its teams to talk about hopefully opening practice facilities up May 8th on a very limited basis. But the second of those memos was 14 pages of guidelines that teams will have to follow just to have a maximum of four players in the gym at once. And, you know, the line's not mine, but it's making its way around the league. If you need a 14-page memo to let four guys in the gym, that's probably a sign that this is too soon, and it just it just gives you a, a glimpse of how, how many boxes have to be checked to make this possible. And so... I hope I'm wrong. I hope everybody can throw this in my face and say I was too worried and an idiot and you're overly safe. And, and I really hope we're back at some point. I think the one, maybe the one ray of hope there is, is that I do think the NBA is willing to move next season and, and completely redo the NBA calendar. And so that does give the hope that at some point, we can get this season back online and finish it to some degree that somehow satisfies people and, and maybe we crown a champion. The NBA still has time. There, it, there are no points for coming out and saying we're done. Like we're seeing that in world, you know, the French league in, in, in soccer, they just announced we're canceled. Uh, Belgium, Belgium soccer league is canceled. Like I don't see the NBA doing that. There's no reason to rush and cancel. If the NBA can finish this season in September, why not try it? But, the tricky part there also is the layoff. This is going to be the longest layoff that players have ever had. And even in a normal NBA off season, these guys are playing pickup ball. They're working with their trainers. They're working in the weight room. The whole month of September before a typical NBA season, these guys are in the gym. It's, it's to the point now where guys are not even shooting the ball. Less than half the league, more, more than half the league, guys have no access to a hoop. So, I mean, it's just unprecedented circumstances. And I think these guys are going to need six weeks to get their bodies right to be even to be able to play. And that's, you, know, you can't rush, you can't just throw guys in the gym and say, hey, and get, we're going to have games in three weeks. I mean, this layoff has been, it's already been two months almost. Yeah. 
Well, number one, if it does come to pass that they start playing again, I certainly won't throw it in your face if you miss the prediction on that. That's uh, that's well within uh, normal bounds to uh, to not be able to nail a prediction like this because it is such an unprecedented situation. I guess I would I would ask, and and again, another tough question to answer. I wonder if professional sports in general, not just the NBA, but will professional sports in general reflect the growing mood in the country? And that is, I think that there's certainly a buildup of people who are craving and thirsting some sort of restart of opening the economy, return to normal. And certainly, I think all of us are very, very understanding of the obstacles that are in place for that. But I just wonder if uh, professional sports will will reflect a general societal momentum that I, that I feel right now, Mark, that is we have to start moving in some sort of direction, not fully. The pendulum isn't going to swing all the way the other direction, but just seems like that there is some uh you know growing sense daily that that things start at some point in time have to start moving in the other direction and i wonder if professional sports will will end up uh reflecting on a smaller scale that general societal thought well look i think it's clear that the white house would like america north american professional sports leagues to start trying to get back involved and, and it is there there is a morale component here i mean that what makes this pandemic so unique in terms of crises that the world has faced not just in the three of our lifetimes but 50 years and beyond before that sports has almost always been there as as the distraction as the comfort as a as a mechanism for people to cope and and it's just not there and that's what's so strange is just having no sports. It, it, it creates, you know, as trivial as it is, as trivial as it is in the grand scheme, given the, the death and destruction that this, this pandemic has brought. But it does, it, you know, it, people do miss it. People really miss sports a ton. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the last dance is getting these ridiculous viewing figures, because it's the closest thing to a live sporting event that we don't, quote, don't know the outcome as, as we can muster right now. But I think another key component to this whole discussion is how do the players feel about this? And, you know, I, I just my, I, I can't say that I've talked, I've talked to 450 players, but I do think there are some that are not all that comfortable with rushing back into a gym right now. I'm sure there are some who do want to, you know, especially, you know, we heard a lot of noise about the Lakers and, you know, they're maybe looking into getting their, their gym open sooner than the laws in California would allow because, you know, that, that, that was a team competing for a championship and those guys, they really want to get into the gym. But I think we will gradually start to hear some reticence from players who feel like, man, this is going too fast. I mean, you, I, my safety isn't being guaranteed to a degree that I feel good about this. So it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to monitor. And uh, I, I just, I hope, I hope circumstances change, but I mean, it's, it's just hard for me to be funny about it. So in that vein, so in that vein, and we'll, we'll let you go after this one, you know, the, it was initially May 1st. Now it's May 8th. And I think a lot of people are reading it as, okay, gyms are going to open up May 8th where States allow it even though it says that that's when I guess a decision will be made on that. Are you saying you anticipate when the eighth comes around that 
we won't see a lot of gyms opening at facilities or that uh, we could see another delay most likely? Or do you think that we'll see some facilities opening up at, for this 14-page uh, kind of you know model? Well, the league made it clear in those memos that May 8th is just a target. So I think the message a lot of teams took from that was the league saying this date might move again. And, and we're not sure that even on May 8th, we can open. And, you know, look, the, it, the initial kind of target was this week, May 1st, and the Hawks have publicly made it known. And that, you know, the Hawks are in Georgia, a state where the restrictions have been eased like they're about to be eased here in Texas. And the Hawks basically said, we're not, uh, the Hawks basically said, we're not, we're not ready to open and we're not going to open. And we want to see how things go in Georgia with the relaxed, stay-at-home restrictions before we open. So I think it's very possible that even if May 8th does get the blessing from the league, that teams will take a wait-and-see approach. Not all teams. Maybe, they, again, maybe, you know, the Lakers seem to be a team that they're ready to go or they want to give it a whirl. Uh, the Hawks are a team that doesn't. So, you know, I think we'll see a mixture of some that want to and some that don't. But, yeah, I think everyone needs to – leave open the possibility that the league says we need to move this date back. Well, Steiny, we appreciate your insight and we uh, enjoyed the trip down memory lane on Rodman and we will enjoy the rest of the last dance as well. Uh, thanks for but, joining. Wait, 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 wait. I got, I got a lot of my question before. We oh, go. Like, yes. I didn't get to, I didn't get to ask my, I didn't get to ask my mailbag question. Fire away. So I don't know. I don't know if follow well is aware of this, but um, you know, Brian, Oh boy! I've always I've always referred to him as America's guest. He is not since Cato Kalin in the OJ scandal <laughs> have we ever have we ever seen someone with an ability to just wind up in fancy places with famous people. This guy has a gift. So my mailbag question was going to be: How did how did this podcast come together? How did America's guest hook himself up? Next to the legendary play-by-play voice, the Dallas Mavericks. Well, the the short answer to that question is is that uh, because he's America's guest, uh, he has been in my uh, sphere of influence, or vice versa. I've been in his sphere of influence for many, many years. And um, this is uh, something that we decided to do this year as a supplement to our Mavericks postgame coverage on the ticket. So we just uh, wanted to have a chance to, to cover in-depth more things that we don't have a chance to cover and the limitations of a radio show. And that's the, that's the short answer of of how it got started and the reality is that i'm drafting off his uh his amazing you know persona and popularity <laughs> and just trying you know he, he does definitely keep me in check uh and, and tell me who's boss every week well he's doing a lot for your street cred a lot <laughs> but brian does the heavy lifting he books all the guests like booking you so we i can't thank him enough and i can't thank you enough for jumping on with this tiny uh, AG has a pretty good Rolodex. I'll give him that. <laughs> All right, Steiny. Thanks a lot. We'll uh, we'll hopefully talk to you about real basketball soon. I hope so too, guys. 
Falwell, that was a great chat with Steiny, and I wanted to touch on some of that. There's never uh, a bad chat with Steiny, by the way. They're no, all he great is, chats he with is greatness, yes. and uh, he should be on the road covering playoff series. We would probably be approaching the end of round one, right? In round yeah. one, probably you, on your way to a game six or game five, maybe on the road. Yeah, we might be back here getting ready for game six against Denver or something like that. But that is not the case. Um, but I do want to touch on some of the interesting Mavs nuggets uh, from episodes three and four of The Last Dance and things that kind of hit my mind while watching it. Okay. And then we'll get to get we'll get to chatting about uh, the rest of the season. Uh, of course, right off the top, you saw uh, Chris Ancy, I think, getting dunked on, <laughs> who Nelly said would be the best. What was it? The best running big man in the history of the NBA? Yes, he, he did say that. I, I don't think he, I don't think I don't know if he meant history of the NBA or just in the NBA at that particular time when Dallas uh, moved up or moved down. I'm sorry to end up drafting him. I think they had the 15th pick in the draft, and they were going and they uh, it looked like they were drafting uh, what was it, Kelvin Cato from Iowa State, and they ended up actually trading down with somebody. I don't remember who it was. Now they traded down a handful of spots and ended up getting Chris Anstey, the best running big man in the NBA which uh, had a pretty short-lived career here with the Mavs. I don't even remember how many. I think maybe it was three seasons and probably not even 200 games. And we could put that up there with Donnie's uh, uh, declaration that Antoine Rigodeau would be the next John Havlicek, I believe. (laughs) I don't remember his uh, expectations of him being quite that lofty. By the way, Chris Anstey's time with Dallas well, it was just two seasons with Dallas and then one with Chicago. So 97, 98, and 98, 99 with Dallas. And then 99, 2000, he actually, and coincidentally, given our discussion, played with the Bulls. And that was a total of 155 games between the two teams, averaging five points and three rebounds a game. So we're going to put seasons. that uh, draft pick in the negative column. It wasn't a great it was not a great draft pick. It was not. And it was, by the way, Portland who Dallas made the uh, trade with. 15th and 18th picks in the draft. Kelvin Cato was drafted 15th, and Chris Anstey was drafted 18th in that particular draft back in 1997. And uh, who was like 19th or 20th? Did we miss out on a really good player? Um, let's see. I would have to look at that. I think that probably the best player that I recall from looking back at that draft that was drafted after those guys was maybe Brevin Knight. Um, so let's see. Kelvin Cato was 15. Oh, Brevin Knight was 16. He was drafted. The Mavs had that pick at 15. They traded down and drafted Anstey, but theoretically they could have drafted Brevin Knight, uh, who works on the Memphis television, the Memphis Grizzlies television broadcast right now. Uh, beyond that, the rest of the first round included Scott Pollard and Bobby Jackson, both of whom had nice little runs with the Sacramento Kings. Jackson, of course, more so. And uh, beyond that, nobody else in the first round was too terribly notable. Anthony Parker, who didn't do much in his first go-round, then went and played several years in Europe and came back and actually had a pretty good run for several seasons with with the Toronto Raptors as a bench player friend starter. And uh, Jacques Vaughn, uh, who played 12 seasons in the NBA, was also a pick very late in the first round. A lot of Orlando time, I believe. Yep, yep, a lot of Um, Orlando time as their head coach as well. So in watching... Uh, the last couple episodes. So they talk about the Bulls and the Pistons run and how the Bulls had to get past the Pistons in the game seven in uh, 89 that Pippen had the migraine. And then that's the summer that Jordan decided to get tougher. Yeah. Get involved with weight training because of how the bad boys were, were pushing him around. Um, you know, two things hit me. One was how the triangle was put in 
to basically, you know, under Doug Collins, it was all about one-on-one Jordan. He was the star. He was going to score. He was scoring champion. I believe that was the year he got 37 points a game, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they asked him about a play, a particular play late in the game, and Collins said, yeah, let's give the ball to Jordan. Everybody else get right. the blank out of the way. Yeah. So it reminded me a little bit about what's going on with Luka. We've talked about these late-game struggles that we've had in crunch time and how he's – I think you would know this. You know, His usage rate has to be one of the tops in the league. Yes. Um, so not that I want to institute the triangle, and this is not a dig on Luka or the coaching staff at all, but I think the development of him as a player will be when we can either systematically or him personally can find a way to – not only be great himself, but and he's got great assist numbers, don't get me wrong, but to some level, getting others involved more so than they are right now. And getting others involved in late-game situations, right. I think kind of is really what you're yeah. specifically speaking about, is uh, being able to, and I think, look, I, I said this all year long, that I think the Mavs' late-game struggles when they were playing in the 2019-20 season was really a case of defenses to the highest level possible zeroed in on Luka in late-game situations. And if Porzingis was playing well, and, and keep in mind, I mean, you know, several of those late-game losses were the times that that he was out of the lineup, uh, be it, you know, load management on a back-to-back or that 10-game stretch of games that he missed uh, right there at the very, very tail end of December and then well on into the first half of January. Uh, you know, so he wasn't there. But... But those shots that Dorian Finney-Smith and Kleba and other players are hitting uh, earlier in the game, they get a little bit tougher uh, when you take those shots late in the game. And Luca does, uh, you know, certainly look to make the pass many, many times. But being able to have another playmaker out there, um, you know, somebody else out there to work with him in late game situations, I think as much as anything will help. And, and that is sort of what, uh, the, the focus of the last dance was. It's like, you know, not that Luca doesn't trust his teammates, but whenever Jordan realized that Pippen was a great number two and John Paxson would be open and John Paxson would hit big shots in a crucial game five against the Lakers in the finals that they showed in the first finals, the first championship they won in 1991. It's it's some component of Luka's game progressing and it's also a component of roster improvement that the Mavericks still are going to have to make in the years moving forward to, to be able to contend at the highest level. And player improvement from those young players getting yeah. like Pippen getting better. Yep. And Very I think point. Phil Jackson may have said it, but you know, you're always going to have, if it's just keyed on one player, like as great as Jordan was, and he was the best ever, especially in that, you know, 89 season, uh, you're always going to be able to stop him. There's the always going can to be, always yeah. key in on one player like that, neither through physical brute force or just schematically uh, stop somebody. And that's what was so interesting to hear the, the Detroit version of the Jordan rules, because Isaiah made it basically sound like the Jordan rules are we are not going to let him get airborne. We're going to keep him on the ground because then we have a fighting chance. We have no chance once he's airborne. But Brendan Malone, who was an assistant coach and went on to be a head coach in the NBA for a, for a brief period of time, he pointed out, uh, you know, as an assistant on Chuck Daly's staff, he got into a little bit more schematic in terms of what the Jordan rules were and forgive me for not remembering, but I believe they said, you know, we're going to, we're going to really, you know, force him left and push him. Uh, uh, no, we're not gonna give, yeah. We're not going to give him the baseline and you know, those sorts of things. So, yeah. so it was, it was, it was a little bit, it was two different viewpoints on what exactly the Jordan rules were, but to your point, yeah, well, there was if, a schematic and a physical part to it. Yep. To, to your point, 
if you're a one-man show, there's always going to be a way uh, a good team is going to be able to limit what one man can do when you get down to the last handful of teams and the biggest the biggest stages and, and conference finals level playoff series and such. Uh, the other Luca-related note I saw was, you know, that same summer, I guess after that Game 7 loss, you know, because the, the Pistons were so physical, you know, their whole goal was to get you out of your head and for you to fight back mm-hmm. because that was their game and taking you out of your game. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things about Luca that may be frustrating to a lot of fans is, you know, when he just is consistently uh, bitching at the refs mm-hmm. and, 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 and maybe taking his head out of the game a little bit. Uh, and again, you know, he plays great, but you know, in an ideal world, I would, you know, and I think the, the 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 step up that the Bulls were able to take is when they said, "Listen, uh, it was that shove that Rodman did on Pippen, and Pippen did not react. They mm-hmm. just played and continued to sweep them, and that was a frustration move that Rodman was doing because that yeah. was the next year when they got swept. Uh, which was, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to go complain to the refs. I'm not going to fight you back. We're just going to play harder and beat you. Yeah. And I would love Luca to take that next step where it is instead of constantly complaining, which doesn't really get you anywhere saying, I'm just going to continue to hoop past you, you know, and, and win two quick thoughts on what you said. You know, number one, I think Luca is certainly a willing worker on his game. And part of working on your game is working on your body. So for example, uh, you know, the, it was, it was certainly stressed to him, the importance of improved physical conditioning from year one to year two. And he really took that yes. seriously this past off season. Yes. And that's part of the reason why, Field goal percentage in the lane, field goal percentage in the paint, in the restricted area, all of those things were significantly up for Luca this year. And then I think the other thing, too, is, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, things he can do to take his game to a higher level. And we're doing this all kind of in the framework of comparing him to Michael Jordan, uh, who obviously is the greatest of all time, or at least, you know, is, is, you know, some will argue that, but certainly he's in the debate for it, obviously. And I think that that's just a sign of the incredible level of talent that we see, the level of expectation that he's creating, because as we know, one of the amazing stories of uh, Luca's very short career is how quickly he's come in and played at a high level and had a high impact on games. And then this year took a meteoric rise to NBA All-Star in the MVP conversation for much of the year, uh, you know, nearly averaging a triple-double, averaging a 30-point triple-double for one particular month, always being in the statistical comparisons we do on the broadcast of only players like Oscar Robertson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Magic Johnson. These are the only players to do the kind of things that Luka has done at these very early stages of his career. So, um, you know, that's we're obviously holding him to a really, really high standard having this discussion, yes. but his overall greatness that he's displayed in a season and three quarters in the league is why that the standards are already very, very high for Luca because, uh, you know, he's shown he's, he's worthy of being viewed, uh, you know, in, in, with with high standards and being judged with high standards at this point because of his greatness. And they were both the third pick in their draft. How about that? Yes. Uh, but yes, I, these comments should be taken exactly in that context of I'm putting up, you know, uh, th- these aren't knocks as much as if, you know, if, you, if you're looking at that high, high bar. Yeah, when you're looking things. at what it takes to win a championship. And there was a recent online poll, I think, that just came out yesterday of, of general managers, 25 general managers anonymously uh, asked, you know, who of the 
25 and under players. So Giannis is not in this category. Uh, would you want to start a franchise with? And Luca uh, ran away with that vote. Yes. Yep. I saw that as well. So, you know, that just shows what not only we as MFFLs think, but of, you know, everybody around the league. Uh, the other thing that I thought was, was interesting about that shove uh, that on Pippen was it, it really reminded me of the Andrew Bynum shove on J.J. Barea in Game 4 of the Mother's Day Massacre against the Lakers. Yes. Absolutely similar because it was the defending champs getting swept, right? feeling frustrated, and doing a, a really, if you remember the J.J., I mean, he was midair and got shoved. Oh, total huge. cheap shot. Yeah. So it just reminded me of the same exact kind of situation playing out. Well, and the thing about it is, is and for, for this is a good chance for me to do some promotion, uh, this week on Fox Sports Southwest, right now we're in the middle of replaying the Wins and the Lakers series. And so uh, on we're recording on Wednesday. On Tuesday night, uh, games one and two were played, which included J.J. scoring eight points in the fourth quarter against the Lakers in game two, the leading score for the Mavericks in the fourth quarter of a game two where Dallas pulled away and won with relative ease. I mean, there were boos at Staples Center that night because of how well the Mavs played in the fourth quarter and how poorly the Lakers played. Um, and the Mavericks going away to a comfortable win. And that included, in the final minute, Artest getting frustrated. He was still Artest then. He wasn't met a world peace yet. But Artest getting frustrated and cheap-shotting J.J., and that led to his suspension for Game 3 of that series. So you'll be able to see Game 3 on Friday night on Fox Sports Southwest. You'll be able to see Game 4 on Friday night as well. You'll be able to see the play that Brian is talking about with Bynum cheap-shotting J.J. Uh, I do think that had... The league been a little bit different, you know, the, the league of the 80s and, and the league of 2011. There's so much more control involved in referees and punishment for leaving the bench area. My recollection of that Bynum-JJ play, Brian, is that if the Mavs could have gotten, if somebody on the bench could have gotten to Andrew Bynum. He wouldn't have a head right now. Yeah, they were they were ready to goal. They were, and as a matter of fact, you know, Bynum had to be, well, he didn't have to be for whatever reason. He has to they, walk by the Mavs bench. Yeah, for whatever reason, they walked him off the floor in front of the Mavs bench. And, um, you know, we weren't televising by that stage of the playoffs. So I was actually watching that game up by where Coop is in the radio area up in up section 200. Up. Yeah, midway up. And it looked to me like even from that distance that that was a powder keg kind of situation where there were guys on the bench ready to tear his head off. But, of course, it never happened, uh, you know, between get-back coaches and referees and all of that, preventing that sort of thing from happening. But, uh, you know, those games will be uh, are in the midst of being replayed this week on Fox Sports Southwest, and we'll have another Mavs playoff rewind. Uh, I've had great conversations with Dirk and Jason Kidd and Rick about that Lakers series. And still to come, man, you're going to get some Sean Marion, some Jason Terry, more Dirk, J.J. Barea, all about uh, awesome. the Oklahoma City series in the finals. Well, I'm glad that you're not replaying uh, my uh, imbibing at the Kitty Trail Ice House the night of the Mother's Day Massacre afterwards. <laughs> We're not replaying that. We Video of that apparently does not exist. I'm kind of sad. <laughs> there are some still photos that have been running around and, is, and was mentioned on the ticket last week when I was on with, with Jake and Dan reminiscing about uh, the 11 run. Um, and I'd totally forgotten about this, but apparently we ran into a rugby team that was there that night and Dirk got into a rugby scrum with one of the guys and and I sent him the photo that was sent to me of Cardinal and me and him and Al Whitley looking on and he he told me that he still has that rugby uh, 
ball that he stole it from those guys and never gave it back. <laughs> because if you remember that was a day game. And so yeah. we were, we had all night to really enjoy that because there was about 10 days off before the Oklahoma city series. Yeah. Even started. Oklahoma city had to go seven games with Memphis. And so the, the Laker game four was May 8th. And then May 17th was whenever the Mavs started their series with the Oklahoma city thunder in the conference finals. So Dirk's uh, I, I can just tell you from interviewing him and all of the guys have been great, but man, Dirk's memories and his perspective on things and Jet's going to have some great stories and Trix is and Berea is. I just, I, I can't tell you guys the farther that we go in these replays on Fox Sports Southwest and then doing these series recap shows where we have the interviews, it's going to get uh, really, really good. And I can even promote, this has not even been mentioned publicly Whoa. yet. Uh, the show after the Miami finals is going to be an hour. We've been doing 30-minute shows. Look at this guy. Yeah, we've been doing 30 minutes after the Portland series, which has already aired, and then after the Lakers series this week and Oklahoma City next week. And then the following week when we get to Miami, we are doing an hour-long playoff rewind show after the finals because we have so much good stuff from so many different participants and i encourage you to watch that it's it, it, and you're using zoom of course to do these uh interviews remotely and i would be remiss if i didn't uh mention to all of our listeners check it out because you can see that mark has uh, strategically placed one of his emmys behind him so that you can see that <laughs> more than one bro come don't, on now get it right <laughs> don't think that is just by chance <laughs> you didn't mention the strategic placement of the wedding picture that's behind there as well yeah so. that was jennifer saying you're sticking this in there if you're sticking the Emmy in there. I did that because it's like, well, honey, if I'm going to put the Emmys here, I'll make yeah. sure to have a wedding picture of us here. Black you know, we're all checking background. So. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm proud of you for noticing that. And I think you, a, are, you are paying attention, my friend, and I, I appreciate that. I think a future, uh, future episode of, of this pod, we should, we should talk about our 2011 memories and some specific stories and things like that. I think that would be fun. Since I've got some people, good ones. Yeah. Uh, the tickets replayed it, and obviously with, with you guys as well. Uh, uh, the last thing on the last dance, uh, what they showed was the 91 finals and MJ crying with that famous, you know, video of him hugging the trophy yep. and crying. And, and he talks about how these just spontaneous emotions come out of you. Mm -hmm. You're so driven to that. And obviously the, the thing that hit me was, you know, remember that was Dirk, uh, in 2011 all over, like as soon as the buzzer sounded, yeah. he jumps over the scores table and runs to the locker room and is, is, you know, on the ground crying, these spontaneous just it all just came out and he had to be coaxed back out onto the floor for the mm -hmm. normal celebrations he was fine he just had to get it out and i think people kind of maybe don't realize that you're you're in that moment it's it's a marathon and a sprint at the same time and you're going so hard that when you finally do climb that mountain it just comes out. Um, and talking with Dirk this week, and I also happened to notice that the defining moments of Dirk was replayed on Fox Sports Southwest uh, before the first game of the Lakers series last night. And that's uh, that's an hour-long show from interview clips I did with Dirk that was during his 20th season. We did a, we did a special called The Defining Moments of Dirk during Season 20. And so you had kind of said, that's all you've got. You're not going to have any yeah. more defining. <laughs> no more defining yeah. moments for you, Dirk. That's it. Uh, he, he talked about uh, the fact that that with an older team in 2011, we the the whole subject of of and it came up on with Dirk and Jet in the Zoom call we've already recorded for the for the playoff rewinds. It, it's come up about the fact that it was an older team. And so. 
there was just a level of exhaustion. And so that's why we were talking about, you know, the the aspect of the last dance where you get to see the cutting it loose celebration after you win, along with the emotional moments. And both of those guys talked a little bit about at first there wasn't like a huge celebration because there was just such a level of exhaustion because a two month playoff run takes so much out of you. Now, one of the stories that did come out of it, uh, you know, and I, and I said, uh, you know, Dirk, I, I remember what it was like at live in Miami and Jed, of course I was at the loon in Dallas the next night when you walked in and you bought a hundred shots for everybody in the bar and Jed several did, times. Yeah. And Jed did love telling that story of the game was being replayed in the loon and Brian Cardinal was there and how everybody got excited. I mean, the place went bananas when Cardinal hit a three and how excited JJ he got, got his charge, uh, <laughs> yeah. drawn charge in the third. I mean, and that you saw me in the second row pointing for no reason at LeBron. Like he really was scared of me. Oh, that will be, we'll have to, that will be part of our, uh, I've got personal some, memory stories when yes. we get to that, but that's all, but, but the whole aspect of emotion in the minutes afterwards and and then it's not uh, it's not quite as natural as everybody thinks to then just to go into wild celebration mode after the fact because it's just so incredibly exhausting what what you go through and Dirk and Jet kind of both reflected that that uh, you know you need a little bit of time before you gear up before you get ready to go into major party mode after that which then was done very very effectively <laughs> yeah that it was so the last thing I have on this and and you may have some others from your viewing of those episodes was as I mentioned with Steiny was the NBA on CBS theme song and so it got me thinking on a, maybe a future podcast that that will uh, I'm going to rank the sports theme songs oh I like that not just basketball but all of them because there's the you know the tour de france there's the olympic theme there's mm-hmm. there's you know all the nfl ones and college football so but but d- hearing that especially you're gonna have a hard time getting me not to vote the uh sec on cbs yes yeah yeah that's that one. i love that one um so you know and again being both of us you know at similar age being teenagers in the 80s and okay and, and getting the the 10 30 <laughs> tape delay of the yeah. you know and brent musburger you know doing his and and uh uh that that did literally give me some chills but but let's let if you don't have anything else let's go uh, in just real, real quick yeah. I, uh, I thought along the lines of you're talking about the nba and cbs theme it was interesting and i forgot this hearing Vern lundquist call some of those like conference finals games between chicago and detroit it was really surprising to hear that uh, you know, because as I remember Dick Stockton doing NBA games. So when Dick Stockton he was, was the calling, finals guy for sure. Yeah. When Dick Stockton was calling, you know, Jordan's 63 point game against Boston that we saw in the previous episodes, that wasn't unfamiliar. But it was really weird this week hearing Vern Lundquist calling conference finals games in, uh, between Detroit and Chicago. Uh, you know, what I what I walked away from it more was. Uh, the memories that I and the things that I enjoyed from the last dance of these last two episodes was focus on Rodman. And we spent a lot of time talking about Rodman, but there was also segments of that. You know, we talked about Rodman from his Mavericks era perspective, but man, hear him talking about how he would go into the gym at night, like in the middle of the night and how he would work on reading the ball coming off the rim to be the best rebounder he could be to hear his insight on that. And for whatever sort of S show that you want to say that Rodman was later in his career in the circus, Rodman clearly has an innate ability in terms of rebounding and defense, and he has great basketball instincts. So to hear him hear a great player and those aspects of the game 
take a deep dive into that. Dude, I really, really enjoyed that part of it. Uh, to hear Phil Jackson talking about his own upbringing and the uniqueness of his upbringing and, uh, in Great Falls, Montana. And just, you know, Phil is such a stoic figure and is such a legendary figure in NBA history. And to hear him uh, reveal something about himself very deep, very personal, um, I thought that was really, really unique. And, um, you know, Jordan's hot sports opinions and hot takes on Bill Cartwright getting the ball with five seconds left on the shot clock and equal opportunity offense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy that part of it, too. <laughs> and Jordan and Jordan's, uh, you know, still holding a little bit of a grudge about, you know, Scotty having a migraine. Yeah. And holding on, obviously holding a grudge about the no handshakes by the Pistons whenever Chicago yes. finally beat them in 91. So. Yes. Uh, just great stuff. And, and, you know, even talking to Steiny about those, you know, by the way, Phil Jackson's last game coaching was the Mother's Day Massacre game. Yeah, that's right. He he was an executive for the Knicks after, but has not coached and will not coach again after that. Uh, but talking to Steiny about, you know, those early Mavs days and Rodman's last time playing for the Mavs, uh, another Mavs tie-in, um, reminds me of so. Cuban was announced, I believe, on January 4th, yes. 2000. Uh, the first game after that was, I believe, the 8th. It was a, ga- a home game against the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. And I went to it with my brother, and we were, were, were sitting there close to the bench area and because uh, I had worked for Mark for some time and were there to support. And, uh, and, and I worked for Donnie then afterwards, and, and you know they've talked openly. He and Nelly thought they were going to get fired. You know, the Mavs were mm-hmm. not in a good way for a while. And yeah. here's this new guy. Nobody knows who he is. I think What's they were nine on? and 23 was the record whenever Mark yeah. bought the team, nine and 23. So, uh, and then went 31 and 19 the rest of the way, even with the four and nine stretch when Rodman was there. So, so during that game, you know, I think there was a hard foul that Carl Malone, I think had committed on Michael Finley or somebody like that. And, and Nelly runs out into the middle of the court and chest bumps Carl Malone. Yeah, that's right. And gets tossed <laughs> from the game. And he's, he's walking by to go in a locker room. You know, Cuban was a season ticket holder, had his seats right where he has them now. Mm-hmm. And Cuban high fives Nelly on the way out. And I turned to my brother and I said, he ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Nelly was calculated. And he's like, this guy's all about passion and excitement. So yeah. I'm going to go do something crazy <laughs> and get the. And of course, everybody in the crowd is going bananas. Yeah, when he went nose to nose with Malone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when when I can still, I, I have a pretty vivid memory of like Nelly puts his hands on his hips, yep. flips his coat back, belly sticks out, and then, and look, hey, Nelly was a tough player in his day. Yeah. I mean, Nelly played a decade with the Boston Celtics and won a lot of championships. If you don't think that there's not some some toughness in Nelly, I, I can promise you there is. I mean, that's that's one of the things that when you see, like, like Doug Collins in The Last Dance. I mean, Doug Collins was the number one pick of the 1974 NBA draft and was part of the, the U.S. Olympic team yes. that got screwed over and has never taken their silver medals from the 72 game against Russia. I mean, you you just forget a lot of times when you see these coaches what, you know, great hard-nosed players they were in their day. I mean, Jerry Sloan, oh. I mean, you know, is probably the toughest, in the words of a good friend of mine who, who, who said, the wildest and toughest SOB this league has ever known. So, 
Uh, you know, these guys, uh, Rudy you Tomjanovich. know, <laughs> yeah, there's a Rudy, you, you want to talk about a tough player there as well. Rudy Tomjanovich, uh, and what he had to come back from with the whole punch Kermit Washington incident as well. But yeah, these, those coaches of the eighties and nineties that we just think of them, uh, you know, and then early two thousands in Nelly's case, we just think of them as coaches. They all were in their day, some, some darn good players and some really tough players as well, including Phil Jackson. And, and you mentioned Nelly, the way he would kind of you know, duck out his arms and, and do that. That's the way he would argue with refs too. You know, he kind of just had that weird motion where he would put his chest out when he was really angry. Well, he was a big dude, man. You got to use, uh, you got to oh, use your body for intimidation at that he point. He is the best. And you think little Brian starting out, you know, at 31 years old, trying to give him analytics reports to a guy who's been in the league more than 30 years. (laughs) Needless to say, I was intimidated. But let's get to uh, some of what's going on now and whether we'll see more basketball this year. Uh, Reports came out this week that initially May 1st was a target date Friday uh, for reopening of some team facilities, which have been closed since uh, March 11th when everything was shut down. Uh, that's since been moved to March 8th, but that's... Or May 8th. May 8th, excuse me. But that's a, as we talked to Steine, uh, a when a decision could be made. Right, right. Uh, there, there is no guarantee that practice facilities in states that have relaxed stay-at-home, shelter-in-place orders, there's no guarantee that practice facilities in those states will open on May the 8th. That's just when an evaluation will be made and perhaps a decision will be made at that point. And, you know, Steiny talked about how over half the players don't have hoops. You know, these young players live in high-rises, apartments, things like that. And so as Tim Cato, I think, reported just a, a recently in a Q&A on, on, this, on the athletic site, Kristaps and Luca are back in their home countries just for that reason to be right. able to, to 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 shoot a little bit more and they can come back very quickly if things did start here. So Maxi Kleber was on um, the Mavs Insider on Fox Sports Southwest uh, right after our Mavs playoff rewind that was on the air the other night and uh, Maxi was asked what was the last time you shot a basketball and he said March the 11th when we played against Denver. So yeah, Maxi's one of those guys that's in uh, a condo presumably in the uptown area and and you know doesn't have access to do anything really basketball skill related. He can do cardio, you know, there's probably an elliptical and a treadmill and, and you know, weights and res- and resistance bands. There are ways to do those things within the confines of his apartment, but specific basketball skill, yeah, there's, you know, can't really do that. Uh, one of the things that really intrigued me from what Stani said, and I didn't know this, I guess I missed it in the reporting, was that there was a 14-page a memo sent to teams kind of on the the guidelines and precautions needed to to have this situation where four players and no coaches could be there and some training could take place. So having heard all that, what are your thoughts uh, hearing Steiny, hearing some of the reporting that, um, you know, what are, what do you, what do you see as timelines right now in your mind? Well, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, shortly after May 8th facilities are open, because I think everybody recognizes that if there's going to be a season, given the layoff length and the nature of the layoff that we just discussed, which has been very, very limited in terms of what you can do from a basketball-related activity standpoint, yes, you can do cardio and weight training and things like that, but just basketball skills. Now, look, some guys have houses, which means there's a hoop in the backyard, so you can do those sorts of things, but a lot of guys can't. So I think that that the league will will look to do within reason, 
get facilities open as soon as possible because then you can at least go do basketball things that you're accustomed to doing. Which could shorten the the, the training camp time. Thank you. That's, that's exactly where I was headed because, yeah, that's uh, – I mean – that's going to be a major impediment. If, if you're telling me you're going to need six weeks, you know, like that Steiny threw that number out. I mean, if you're going to need that much of a ramp up time, I mean, that's going to be a huge impediment to this whole idea that we have that, that ultimately I think you and I are pretty optimistic voices out there that the league will eventually find a way to restart and salvage some semblance of the season. Because I think you and I both look at it from the standpoint of, and I mean, don't mean it to sound so callous or anything like that, but there's money to be, uh, not lost here for, right. for you know I, I don't I don't know if money to be made is the right way to put it uh, just a, a less of a significant amount of money to be not lost on both sides both players and owners yeah yeah and I think that you know Cuban was on CNN Monday and and he he definitely is on the wants to play side uh, and, and as he puts it you know for the the impact that he believes, and we talked about with Stani, that sports is on our society giving us something to, to right. cheer about as a community. Um, you know, in this time. And so, uh, you know, I think he is when, when they have those board of governors calls, he's probably, you know, of that contingent that's pushing to open. And I think that silver having been the first one to close, will want to take a leadership smartly in opening. Mm -hmm. And these are the first steps that you have to take to get there. Now, I don't think, you know, we've heard some concern about competitive advantage because some States like California and New York aren't going to be open on the eighth. Uh, if, Texas, which is opening on the first, is open. Uh, I don't see a lot there. The NBA said they will try to make some accommodations with other facilities or things like that. Um, I think that kind of stuff can be worked through. I do, too. I do, too. Um, you know, the other thing I think that the NBA has in its favor, I had a conversation, you know, not a not a uh, on-air conversation. I had an off-air conversation with someone at Fox Sports Southwest that I'm, that I'm close to and is in the uh, leadership hierarchy there. And we discussed that. I said, "Well, I, I honestly think baseball might be the sport that gets back out on the field first of the of the big sports that were interrupted: baseball, hockey, and basketball, because that's the game that uh, you know uh, lends itself to much more physical distancing during the game, uh, and that's also the sport that is trying to." You know, I mean, they've got a full season that they've got to play. Now, clearly 162 games isn't going to happen. But the NBA and the NHL were very close to the ends of their respective regular seasons. They can uh, erase the remainder of the regular season as a last resort. And or do some play, kind of play in yeah. for the last few spots if yeah. needed. Or play a shortened number of regular season games. They have uh, time on their side in terms of what they start back up isn't a very long period of time, but it's an important period of time, of course, because it's the playoffs. Um, whereas baseball, I mean, they they want to get started because they've got a whole season, and clearly they're not going to get a whole season. They but they've got they've got a season that they want to play, and there are weather implications in terms of how late into the year that you can go playing a World Series. So yeah, there's that's the sport that I think of, of the big team sports that will be back. Obviously, I guess UFC is the first thing that's going to be back with, uh, with an event in Florida. Uh, I know that, that the PGA, I believe that their return is actually going to be here in the Metroplex at colonial. Uh, I believe the first or second weekend of June, that's the target Around return June there. 11th, I think. Uh, you know, major league soccer has talked about that. They want to come back June 8th, but I, I believe that they're talking about that being a return to training June 8th. I don't know that they're talking about a return to actual games on June 8th uh, in their case, but I know that, you know, they're, they're 
anxious to to get back up and rolling as well. You know, one thing that's happened, Brian, by the way, in terms of sports coming back, one of the the, the, the leagues overseas, it seemed like they were the closest to getting back as the German Bundesliga, the top flight soccer league there. Now, one thing that just came out today that is standing in the way of their push to move forward is even though for some weeks they've been having appropriate training sessions that have been involving physical distancing and, you know, limited numbers of players out on a soccer pitch at any given time. Uh, the, the public health authorities in Germany and law enforcement authorities in Germany are afraid about, even with the idea of playing what they call ghost games, where there are no fans in the stands, that there would still then be an attempt to have public gatherings of fans in other places, that people would want to get together in to the pub, games, right? basically to watch games. Which and, is a very European yeah. thing to do. And so that's a real concern for them. And, and you know there was a real feeling that Bundesliga action would be resuming in the middle of May in Germany. I mean, I had heard target dates of either the weekend around Saturday, May the 9th, or the weekend centering around Saturday, May 16th. And while I don't think that those days have officially been nixed, it does seem like that there is reticence because of ancillary things outside of just guaranteeing player safety, even in a situation where you don't have fans at games. Now, I don't think that's probably as big of a concern here in the States. Uh, because that's just not uh, that's not as much of uh, U.S. sporting culture that we're all going to go to the pub and watch the game. I mean, we do we do that. We do go to the sports bar and watch the game right. here, not but like there. Yeah, not like there. Exactly. Yeah, you can walk into a bar here in an opposing team's colors and not get the crap bat beaten out of you. Like <laughs> like in England, you literally can't go if you're in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah, you, you're not allowed in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Brian if you're is wearing the you opposing right team's that. colors. Yeah, you cannot go. <laughs> I went. I was in the Chelsea area, and, and there was it was during the Champions League, and so I was like, oh, I'll get to watch all the games in one bar. And I went in, and they only had the Chelsea game on, and then. They, not dawned on me like of course they're not going to show the man U game we're in chelsea <laughs> no. no way yeah this this stadium is too close to stanford bridge man uh, but i think the benefit of what the the nba has is yes there are there are only a few games left in the regular season they can cut that down you know to just a handful yeah they can adjust that how they deem fit and you know let's say that i, I think if if people get concerned that if May 8th gets pushed back farther, that we won't have a season, I don't think that's a concern because we have some time. You know, if, if you start this in July, let's say games start in July and you play till the end of September, um, well, only two teams are playing really at the end of September. Mm -hmm. So you could start back up in Christmas mm -hmm. because a lot of players, A, are getting this part off. Right. And if they're not a playoff team, are going to get even more time off. So, you could only have an October, November, two month layoff instead of your customary six or seven mm -hmm. and start back up right. and, and be fine and start at Christmas. And you may keep the calendar that way. Yeah, I think there's certainly, look, I mean, Steiny said it, and I think that we, we've heard from Adam Silver, everything's on the table. And by everything on the table, that means an adjustment to next season's calendar to accommodate uh, as much of a wait as possible to get this season restarted. I think that's on the table. I mean, the only thing to me, that that uh, that throws, you know, uh, into a whole lot of uncertainty is then when do you do the draft? What does free agency and that very shortened time frame of, of the offseason look like? 
what does making a schedule look like? Because the NBA, uh, you know, has really started in the last few years because of what happens in offseason free agency. They don't, I mean, you know, they know building availability dates. Those dates have been submitted by the teams and preferred dates have been submitted by the teams. But they really wait until after big things happen in free agency for working on significant parts of the schedule because the uh, the the television attractiveness of a team may greatly be enhanced or may take a big hit based on what happens during free like agency. The Warriors. Yeah, so, so that sort of stuff, they wait that out. So... Uh, but even in the Warriors case, you know, even with Durant leading in the offseason, you know, they didn't, you know, they and didn't. And they were stuck with a lot of Warriors national games after yeah, they Steph got injured. Yeah, that's, like what, that. that's what really caused it to take the big hit was Steph getting injured, of course. Uh, you know, even before, you know, Durant and had left and Clay Thompson was, was you know, you knew he was going to be out for a long period of time. So that's going to be a really short turnaround time. Uh, to just do league business. Your point about players having the time off is a very, very good one. League business, I think, is going to be the biggest challenge is how do we do a draft, free agency, a schedule, uh, and, you know, building availability and everything, you know, uh, lines up with the, with how we want to set up the next season. And the discussion is brought up again, then you just shorten the season, have six, six games starting at Christmas, and then have some mid-season tournament to make up some of those dates because that's revenue lost right to try to keep the season maybe going to july but not have it run you know not just shift at all but still kind of keep it where you know there's a you know some time off uh in the fall we are, uh, you know, unfortunately, Brian, we still are just in the extraordinary speculative sense because of the nature of, you know, what's going on here. And I, I think everything that you and I have said, if we continue to do these podcasts now, I think for whatever it is, seven weeks, eight weeks after the suspension of the season, I mean, you know, we, we've had a lot of theories. We've had a lot of uh, guesses and suppositions and throwing stuff up against the wall and, and you know, the, they're, they're all good ideas. They're all valid ideas. And I think any number of things are on the table. Uh, you know, I'm an optimist. I still think this is going to get rolling. I know there are a lot of pessimistic views out there. I'm an optimist. And I'm also just a, a guy who feels like that that owners and players are, are uh, you know, I, I don't want to make it all about the money part of it because I do think they all appreciate what you know, getting to practice their craft, getting to be back out on the floor and compete. They want to do that, of course, as well. And I think they all appreciate what uh, sports means to American society and morale and everything. So so all of it is going to play a factor. But, I, but you know, I'm an optimist, and I think the, the desire of, ever, of most everybody, I feel like, that's associated with the lead to get back out there will lead to us ultimately doing that. Well, what we do know is we'll be back next week yeah, with another that much exciting edition know. here. And until then, we can... Watch you on your uh, Fox Sports Southwest and admire your Emmys. Yes, Friday night at 11 o'clock after games three and four of the Lakers series. So check out the Emmys. All right, and then we'll see everybody back next week. <laughs>